All right, welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your fin de siècle speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. And this is going to be a really exciting episode because here we are talking about The Golem by Gustav Meyrink. This is a book that was originally published serially between 1912 and 1914, and then with some few revisions as a book in 1915. And that's the version that we all read now, of course. Now, Meyrink was a native German speaker, and so he wrote in German, but I have read the English translation by Mike Mitchell. This book was nominated by a Patreon supporter, and then it won the Patreon vote, and in fact, it ran away with its victory. It beat the second-place book by over 20 votes, and 80% of voters voted for it. It was a real landslide, probably the biggest landslide in ATOS history. Uh, Not that that's a thing I'm really keeping track of. Uh, Maybe it should be. It's kind of fun. Uh, The Race for Second, and and I'm only taking two books off this vote, by the way, The Race for Second was much, much tighter. Uh, In fact, there was a tie between Everything Under by Daisy Johnson and Nine Princes in Amber by Roger Zelazny. Now, I have a number of factors that I will use to break a tie. We've had ties before and many different types of things we vote for here on Clay Temple Media. But in this case, I went with The Amber Book by Zelazny because uh, although I'm eager to check out Daisy Johnson, I've never read her. Uh, I took the Zelazny because that keeps us from doing back-to-back weird fiction, uh, variety, something we're after on this show. And also because although this was not nominated, we have in the past been commissioned by a Patreon supporter to do a whole bunch of Zelazny. Uh, More on that next month, in fact. Also coming very close, though, on this vote, uh, really just separated by one vote each, was Tau Zero by Poole Anderson, The House with a Clock in Its Walls by Jonathan Belairs, who just can't seem to catch a break, and The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. So those are all going to go back on the ballot for next time, and they're going to be joined by the very first Riverworld book by Jose Philip Farmer, and also The Way of Shadows by Brent Weeks, uh, and some others, of course. There's you know, usually about 10 books on the ballot. But all right, let's talk about Gustav Meyrink and The Golem. This is a classic, classic book, but it is my very first time reading it. It's it's my first time reading any Meyrink at all, though I see now that there is a short story collection available. I think that's also done by Mike Mitchell. So, you know, keep an eye out for that on some upcoming Elder Sign ballots, because I loved this book. Uh, I've been aware of it for a long time, though it turns out not to actually have anything at all to do with the famous German film from the, the 1920s, even though an image from that film is on the cover of the edition that I'm, I'm reading. I always thought that uh, that film was an adaptation of this book. Totally not. But in any case, I was really glad to have the opportunity to read this book. I mean, that's kind of what this podcast is for. So let's do it. Let's just get straight into The Golem. So I suspect that this is going to be a pretty short recap. Hopefully it will be refreshingly short. We've been doing some very long recaps on the show lately. But let's just start with the setting. We're in Prague, and the year is 1893. Now, the text never says that, to be clear. I mean, it says we're in Prague, but it never says it's 1893. And it may be that you have a different interpretation of when this story is taking place, though we know for sure it is the 19th century. Uh, I'll talk more about that in the next segment. But all right, so Prague, 1893, maybe late 1892, and more precisely, this story occurs almost entirely in the Jewish ghetto, what is also called the Josephov or or Yosefov, though that name never actually appears in the story. It is always the Jewish ghetto or the Jewish quarter. And much of the novel, especially the first act, is chiefly about this district, about this neighborhood in Prague. Uh, The inhabitants, the shops, the nightlife, and the stories that the inhabitants tell. 
And indeed, this section feels a lot like the Satyricon, which was a, a Latin prosimetrum story, you know, novel, you could call it, if you will. I'm pretty sure Wikipedia calls it that. Uh, it's a, a work that details the adventures of a well-off Roman citizen's adventures through the seedy parts of Roman society during the reign of Nero. And in the, the first act of The Golem, we get something similar. One of the first characters that we meet is a 14-year-old prostitute. Uh, We also meet a a pair of young brothers who are both in love with her and jealous of each other, like violently jealous of each other. We also meet Aaron Wassertrum, the depraved owner of a junk shop, but also secretly a very wealthy person despite his miserliness and just a real general misanthropy. There's an apartment where an aristocratic woman is having an affair with a doctor, And we spend a lot of time at various bars hearing stories about Jewish folklore and just the neighborhood gossip. One of these bars is clearly also a brothel, or at least it's a place where prostitutes can find customers. And it's quite popular with soldiers, including one officer who maybe is a minor member of the royal family. So in all, it is a debauched setting. But it is also a vibrant setting where German-speaking and Czech-speaking Christians mingle with each other, as well as with the local Jews, who seem to be largely German-speaking. It is also a place where people of different classes interact, and so we might think of it as a place where the normal social boundaries are more permeable. And this is the context in which we first hear about the golem. Uh, We'll talk more about the golem legend in the next segment, but I'll say here simply that the golem is a magical being created by a rabbi uh, a few hundred years ago for the purpose of protecting the neighborhood from persecution. But something went wrong, and now it sometimes shows up and does horrible things that everyone should be afraid of. At the time of our story, the golem has been sighted again for the first time in a generation. Uh, It appears every 33 years for a a short time. That's the the rule, anyway, in this book. And this time, it seems to be murdering people. But then it turns out that all of the sightings of the golem have actually just been a well-known homeless person in some old clothes that he found. So, uh, false alarm. And, And also, that guy had nothing to do with any of the murders. So, case closed there. Except that our narrator has seen the golem and knows that it is real. And so it is time to meet that narrator. I I guess it goes without saying then that this is a first-person story. It is being told to us by Athanasius Pernath, uh, though more on whether or not that is actually true a little bit later. But in either case, Pernath is not Jewish and not a native of the ghetto. He's a German-speaking Christian and seemingly a fallen member of the aristocracy. His father seems to have lost the family fortune. And so there's more than a little of the Gothic about this story. On top of this, he has no memory of any life before coming to live in the ghetto, which is something he's done only recently. And this is by design. In his previous life, he had a mental breakdown, and part of his psychological treatment was simply to have his memory erased through hypnosis. Pranath now is in his 40s, but he really seems only to have memories that go back a year or two at most. And what he's doing here in the ghetto is working as a gem cutter and jewelry engraver. And in fact, he's highly sought after in this capacity. He's supposed to be very, very good at this. And so he has money, but he chooses to live in a rundown apartment in the poor part of the Jewish ghetto with a prostitute for a neighbor. 
And the story that we will eventually get in Acts 2 and 3 involves, uh, on the one hand, it involves Pernath's love life. And then on the other hand, it's his accidental embroilment in a convoluted melodrama about murder, revenge, uh, more murder, (laughs) a lot going on there. Uh, So let's talk about this melodrama first, which all hinges around Wassertrum, the miserly millionaire junk dealer. So he had a son who left the ghetto, changed his name, and became an eye surgeon. But that guy wanted to become wealthy, and so he scammed patients by diagnosing them with glaucoma, even though they didn't actually have glaucoma, and then performing an expensive surgery on them. And this, of course, left their vision impaired, but from their perspective, he had saved them from going blind. And so he achieved both wealth and fame through this scam, And this scam is really hard to detect because, at least in this story, I have no idea what I'm talking about, not an eye doctor or anything remotely close to it, but at least in this story, glaucoma can go through a period when it has not been detected, even after it has been detected. So even a second opinion would be inconclusive. But one character did find out. This is an impoverished Czech medical student named Karasek, who's the son of a prostitute and then almost certainly Aaron Wassertrum. And he discovers the crimes of Wassertrum's legitimate son, which is to say his half-brother, and reports them to another doctor who brings the charges against him. Uh, and this results in the suicide of Wassertrum's son. But, but that's not even the melodrama, right? That's just the back story here. The melodrama is that Wassertrum wants revenge on the doctor, while Karasek is trying to prevent this and also just really wants to murder Wassertrum himself, but is kind of toying with him before he gets around to doing that. So that's a really compelling story. But how does the narrator actually come into any of this? Well, he knows Karasek, uh, just coincidentally, really. He gives him some money on the street once and they become friends. But more directly because the doctor is the person who is renting the apartment next to his and using it to have an affair with a woman who, it turns out, knows Pernath from her own childhood. Uh, She must be about 20 years younger than him. And encounters with her do seem to bring back some of his forgotten memories, Pernath's forgotten memories, I mean. And uh, there were two places where I was certain that the narrator was suddenly going to remember that he is a murderer and then have to fight the impulses of that version of himself or, or, or something like that. That's not what happens. It's not what the story's about at all. Instead, what does happen is that he falls in love with this woman, and maybe she falls in love with him too, and Wassertrum sees them together for sure, and uh, he now tries to get at the doctor through her, but he tries to get at her through Pernath. But Pernath won't give her up to Wassertrum, so Wassertrum frames Pernath for uh, another murder, and (laughs) Pernath is then arrested for that murder and spends about a year in jail while the crime is investigated. There's no trial. Uh, He has no recourse to an attorney or a judge or, or anything at all. He's just totally at the mercy of the police here. And this narrative is harrowing. And it struck me while reading this that Wolf was familiar with this story because it felt very much like the prison narrative in The Fifth Head of Cerberus. I mean, the the interviews in particular felt like a model for what we get in uh, VRT, the last part of The Fifth Head of Cerberus. But getting back to this story, while Pernath is in prison, he hears from Karasek and learns that Vassertrum is dead, though not actually by Karasek's hands, which is a, a disappointment to him. 
But Vasudrum actually left all of his wealth to Karasek, who is about to kill himself now and is going to leave that newly inherited wealth to various people. And this includes Pernath, because although Pernath has no memory of it, Vasertrum had defrauded Pernath's father and is in fact responsible for the financial ruin of their family, uh, and perhaps also then of the mental breakdown that Pernath suffered. Though we don't ever get any details about how any of that actually happened. And in the end, the, the charges are dropped, Pernath is let out of jail, and when he returns to the world, he discovers that the ghetto is being bulldozed and his old apartment is already being demolished. Uh, the old life, the life he has been yearning to return to while rotting in this prison is just gone. And as you can imagine, this precipitates a crisis. But part of why it does that is that Pernath is really, really super duper in love with a character I've not actually mentioned at all yet. This is a young Jewish woman who was a neighbor of his who uh, used to live in that building, and now he doesn't know how to find her, uh, though he does try very hard. We flash forward a little bit, and one night, the building in the Jewish quarter where Pernath is now living catches on fire. And as he is escaping by repelling down the outside of the chimney, this is a really great scene, by the way, uh, repelling down the outside of the chimney, he sees her and her father through a window, and he tries to jump for the window, but he misses the, the ledge. And then that's it. But that's not actually the end of the book. We leave this story now and are 30 years in the future, so roughly contemporary to the, the book's publication. And we are now in the perspective of another character, writing in the first person, who has just woken up from a dream. And that dream is the story that we've just been reading. But it's not a dream. Not really. Now, this narrator knows that he has experienced the life of a another person, a very real person, right? He has experienced someone else's life in his sleep somehow. And it turns out that he knows of Athanasius Pernath because he has his hat, which he had accidentally picked up in a public place the other day. Uh, it's got Pernath's name in it. That's how he knows this. So now he decides to try to find Pernath by visiting the places from his dream. But of course, that was 30 years ago, and the residential buildings in the ghetto have been demolished. The streets have been all redone, and everything has been rebuilt. And so what he does is just wander around what used to be the ghetto, interviewing people, trying to find Pernath. And while he is doing this, he's told that he actually quite looks like Pernath. And eventually, he does find who he's looking for. He finds Pernath, who is now an old man in his 70s and who has a very nice home in the city and also a wife. And this man, who is now the narrator of our story, believes that this is Miriam. That's the, the Jewish woman that Pernath was searching for when we last left him. He rings the bell, uh, a butler answers the door and takes the hat, and then he returns with the narrator's hat, which Pernath had picked up during the accidental freaky hat day swap here. But Pernath is not going to invite the man in, which is rude, though the butler wants to be clear that this is simply a long-standing household rule that would apply to anyone, and Pernath doesn't mean to be rude. And that's it. That's where the book ends. Now, this sudden intrusion of another narrator and another narrative is really, really interesting. And there was some hint that this was going on at the beginning of the book and, and also a few other places throughout, though it can really only make sense on a, a reread. And so 
What I want to do now, as we move into our themes and motifs segment here, is to talk about the fantastical and mystical elements of this story, of which this is one, uh, but which I have so far really left out in order to focus on this gothic melodrama of murder and intrigue and eye surgery. The novel is called The Golem, and so that seems like a pretty good place to start to me. Uh, There are at least hundreds of golem stories from a number of Jewish communities in in Europe, and and actually around the Mediterranean, in fact. But most of them share the same basic idea that a golem is a humanoid figure made of clay or uh, some other raw material out of the, the earth and then brought to life through a type of religious magic. The Golem of Prague is the most famous of these stories, right? If you know one Golem story, it's this one. And it is a real story. It's a a real part of the cultural history of Prague. But there are as many versions of the story as there are tellers of the story. Though most really point to the, the late 16th century when a rabbi created the Golem in order to protect the inhabitants of the ghetto from persecution, a pogrom. But scholars generally agree that this form of the golem story dates from the early 19th century, and so it was not even 100 years old when Myring wrote this novel. And of course, Myring takes his own liberties with this story, so let's take a look at how he uses it, and I'll do some extensive quoting here. Uh, Here's what one of the characters at the bar says. Who can claim to know anything about the golem? Everyone says it's a myth until one day something happens in the streets that brings it back to life. Then for a while, everybody talks about it, and the rumors grow and grow until they're so blown up, so exaggerated, they become completely implausible, and everyone dismisses them. The origin of the story is supposed to go back to the 16th century. A rabbi, following instructions in a lost book of the Kabbalah, is said to have created an artificial man, the so-called golem, as a servant to help him ring the synagogue bells and do other menial tasks. And uh, this character goes on to say that the key was that the rabbi had to deanimate the creature at night, but one night he forgot, and so it went raging through the streets. Now, this character thinks that the rabbi did destroy the golem eventually, but other people at the bar insist that it is still active. Another of the narrator's drinking companions has a more elaborate understanding of the the golem, something that sounds scientific in an early 20th century context, and he even thinks that he's figured out that it emerges every 33 years. Uh, That number is going to be important for us later. And here's what this character says. Once in every generation, a spiritual epidemic spreads like lightning through the ghetto, attacking the souls of the living for some purpose which is hidden from us and causing a kind of mirage in the shape of some being characteristic of the place that, perhaps, lived here hundreds of years ago and still yearns for physical form. Perhaps it is right here among us, every hour of the day, only we cannot perceive it. You can't hear the note from a vibrating tuning fork until it touches wood and sets it resonating. Perhaps it is simply a spiritual growth without any inherent consciousness, a structure that develops like a crystal out of formless chaos according to a constant law. And his character goes on like this for another page or so, thinking of the golem as a manifestation of a kind of shared consciousness of the community. And this type of argument here, this type of explanation for the golem feels exactly like the sort of thing that we might find in one of the Edwardian or late Victorian occult detective stories that we like to read over on Eldersign, either by William Hope Hodgson, the Karnacki stories, or the John Silent stories by Algernon Blackwood, this kind of scientific rationale for something that previous generations would have regarded as mystical. 
But the narrator is actually having his own experience of the golem, which is reportedly active again, as I said in the recap. He sees it in his room. Usually this happens when he awakens suddenly from a dream, and uh, he finds it standing over him. And of course, sometimes it has his face. In fact, at first it really doesn't, but then later it becomes more and more a mirror image of him. And he at least once encounters the golem out in the, the streets of the ghetto, not just in his room. But these encounters with the golem don't amount to anything. The, the golem does not ever really impact the plot in any way. Uh, really, what is going on here is that these are a patchwork of mystical or supernatural, I guess we could say, uh, mystical or supernatural experiences that Pernath is having. And uh, let's talk about some of the others, try to put this all in a, a context, see what this this big picture here is. So the first potentially mystical experience that Pranath has is early in the book, and whether or not it is actually mystical, Pranath, and my rink maybe we should say here, certainly narrates it in a dreamlike manner. And I'm just going to read this passage. It is more than a page, so bear with me here. Unless the feeling I have is mistaken, someone is following me up the stairs, always staying the same distance behind me, in order to visit me, and he must be just about on the last landing now. And now, he must be coming around the corner. Hillel, the archivist at the Jewish town hall, lives up the worn stone stairs and out onto the top story landing, with its floor of red brick. Now, he is feeling his way along the wall. And now, right now, he must be reading my name on the doorplate, laboriously deciphering each letter in the dark. I positioned myself in the middle of the room, looking towards the entrance. The door opened, and he came in. He took only a few steps towards me, neither removing his hat nor saying a word of greeting. That is the way he behaves when he feels at home, I sensed, and I found it quite natural that he acted as he did, and not otherwise. He put his hand into his pocket and took out a book. And there's never any dialogue, any conversation, but Pernath comes to understand that this man wants him to repair a decorative capital letter in, in this book. It's a, a golden eye. And the book contains a Jewish mystical text, and when Pernath opens it up, he has a mystical experience just from reading a little bit of the, the text. And when he comes out of it, the strange silent man is gone, and although Pernath remembers that he existed, he can't remember any details of his appearance. So, of course, we're left wondering if this encounter ever really happened, and Pranath's friends don't seem to think it did uh, when he tells them about it. And Pranath continues then to have mystical experiences related to this book, as well as other dreamlike encounters. And I think it's probably fair to say that this is half the book, but I, I did leave these out of the recap section because they're, they're not the plot, right? One of these dreamlike encounters involves Pernath wandering around and discovering a secret chamber where the golem lives, uh, which is taken from some of the local lore here, this idea that the golem hangs out in some secret room somewhere. Uh, secret rooms, by the way, are something of a motif in this book. Uh, maybe secret entrances to rooms, bizarre pathways, as there is also a strange way to get into the neighboring apartment where the affair is taking place as well. Another prominent motif in the book is somnambulism, or sleepwalking, if you will. Uh, in fact, it's a big question about a lot of these dreamlike encounters, whether they're actually just dreams that didn't really happen, or if they're some form of sleepwalking, or if they're just happening to Pernath while he's awake and just don't feel like it because of the way that it's narrated. But in the prison section, one of Pernath's fellow prisoners is a genuine somnambulist. When he sleeps, his soul travels somewhere else. It's a, a, an astral projection of sorts. And 
This is another place where I feel certain that Gene Wolfe read this book around 1970 or 1971. At any rate, one night, this somnambulous soul ends up in the apartment of Purnath's love interest and her father. And it's through this that Purnath is able to communicate with her. They, they speak through the body of this sleeping prisoner like it's a, a telephone. And so these are the fantastical elements of the story, the supernatural elements. But it is an open question whether any of it really happened or if it has all just happened in Purnath's mind. Is there really a golem with Purnath's face who comes into his apartment and stares at him while he sleeps? Did Purnath really speak to Miriam through the belly of a sleeping prisoner? And, and, and so on. We question all of it. And I lean towards no. Uh, I lean towards that none of this actually happened, that there is not really any speculative element to this story, that it's all been a mystical experience really only happening on a subjective level. It's only been subjectively real to Purnath, is what I'm saying. Uh, but I think that other readings are quite possible. I'm going to bring up one of them later. And this is the sort of thing I would love to talk about on the forum or on our Reddit page. Now, wrapped up in these mystical encounters is the idea of salvation. Now, salvation, right? This is a major theme of most religions. It's what they are for. And here, we are dealing with a Christian who is exploring Jewish mysticism, but the salvation that Myrick envisions in this book is not actually a religious salvation. One of the things that I've enjoyed most about reading The Golem is that it has received a fair amount of treatment from scholars. And so I've been able to read some really interesting journal articles about different aspects of this book. Eric Klaus, who's a, a scholar at Hobart and William Smith College, writes that Salvation for my rank does not correspond to a Christian notion of the soul's ascendance to an otherworldly paradise, but resides in freedom from fear and from the exigencies of material existence. Uh, end quote there. Uh, and this is really clear throughout the book, right? Material existence, the, the real physical world, uh, is something of a trap. It's a, a world largely of misery, and many of our characters are looking for a way out, a way out of that misery, a way out of the world. Now, Myring draws a sharp contrast between Aaron Wasserstrom, the, the bad guy who is miserly and misanthropic and has become rich in part because of his misanthropy, with the character Hillel, who lives in Pernath's building and is the, the father of Miriam, who's the, the main love interest. Hillel gives away almost everything that he has. Uh, and in fact, Pernath ends up trying to provide secret financial support to the, the two of them, to, to father and daughter, even though Hillel makes a decent middle-class salary as an archivist. But because Hillel gives his wealth away to others, he's held up as an ideal here. And his charity derives from his interest in spirituality, where Wassertrum's villainy derives from his obsession with his material wealth. Because the material world is itself awful, uh, Myrink explores uh, a number of ways that one might go about trying to deal with that awfulness. Uh, overcoming it, becoming immune to it, right? That's the preferred solution. And the spiritual elements of this book are really about Purnath's journey to overcoming it, right? To becoming immune to the material world. But opting out is another option that Myrink presents. Suicide is an important part of this story. Purnath considers it. Uh, in fact, he intends to kill himself and is only prevented from doing so by his arrest. And the character Karasek does kill himself. And Myring depicts this with real compassion and, and real pity. Let me share with you some of the passages that deal with this struggle. First is something that Hillel says. He says, Life itches and burns like a hair shirt, 
but the rays from the sun of the spiritual world are mild and warming. And then here is what the narrator is thinking on the morning that he intends to commit suicide. If only the sun had shone for the last time, so that its sparkling rays would no longer fill your heart with the brazen lie that life is full of joy. And these are just two of the the many such passages that I've selected, really just to give you a taste of this aspect of the, the book. I actually want to turn away now from these spiritual and supernatural elements of the story, and I want to look at the the setting, and and maybe this can be a nice bridge between the, the themes and motifs segment here and the, the strengths and weaknesses segment, because one of the elements that I loved most about this book is the way that Fin de Siecle Prague came alive here in my imagination while reading it. There are a number of things I want to talk about here, and I think the odds are pretty high that this is going to run away from me. I'm going to end up going on for a while. But let me start with, briefly, this phrase that I've used a few times, fin de siècle. Uh, that's French. Uh, if you saw it, you would know that, but my French pronunciation is pretty terrible, so you probably thought it was Klingon or something. Uh, but it just means the end of the century. And this is a, a phrase, it's a term that refers specifically to the end of the 19th century and then also the beginning of the 20th. A turn of the century is really probably a better English translation, at least translating for sense, because fin does mean end. And it is a proper noun in that usage, right? This is an artistic and literary period that runs from uh, 1890 till 1910, maybe a little more on either side, depending on the scholar who's using it, or, or just depending on the place under scrutiny, I suppose, as well. The idea here is that during this period, there was a real cultural flowering in cosmopolitan cities in Europe. Uh, Paris, obviously, I mean, phrases in French, right? Uh, but actually, especially the German-speaking world, uh, most prominently Vienna, uh, but also Berlin, and uh, to a lesser extent than Prague. And we don't use this term, fin de siècle, we don't use this term to refer to Anglophone culture because we already have late Victorian that means about the same thing, Uh, though, of course, the Edwardian period overlaps with this as well. And just to give one example, let's take a look at Vienna, though I myself am partial to Paris. Uh, But in Vienna, we use this term to talk about how awesome it was that Gustav Klimt and Sigmund Freud and Gustav Mahler and Wittgenstein and uh, many, many more people than that were were all active in the same place and at the same time. And also that Vienna just had an awesome coffee shop scene during these years as well. But also one of the characteristics of this era and what made these pockets of cultural awesomeness possible was the advance of industrialization. This created the urban middle class. It expanded the role of universities, which in turn established a consumer market for literature and art and scholarship. It created some exorbitantly wealthy people as well who were able to spend that money on artistic patronage, uh, both as a hobby and also as a, a marker of their prestige. This is also when new technologies were radically altering urban landscapes, the the built environments that we all live in. We're getting electricity, we're getting sewer systems and subways, and uh, in America, at least anyway, during this time, skyscrapers. It is also when coffee shop culture and restaurant culture, uh, leisure culture, maybe we should say, becomes an expectation of middle-class life. It really is an exciting period, and there is a reason that a lot of literature from this time has endured in ways that uh, literature from earlier in the 19th century has not. And this sort of thing is going on in Prague as well, though it's really something that we see more in hindsight, like now, today, in the 20th century as well, but not in the present moment. And here I'm thinking mostly of Kafka, right, who wrote during this period, but didn't publish much of his own material. In fact, almost all of Kafka's work was published after his death. 
And, and My Ring, too, did not have success until this book, which was not published until 1914, even though he had been working on it since 1907. I mean, I guess it was serialized in ni- starting in 1912. But at any rate, a few years right went by that he was working on this and not finding a publisher for it. And so while there were people writing some really awesome literature in Prague and during the, the Fin de Siecle, it wasn't a recognized scene. It wasn't recognized as a part of this, this scene at the time. But we can see a lot of other hallmarks of Fin de Siecle energy in the Prague that Myring shows us here. There's a vibrant bar culture, and that's one of the big things. Uh, we also see the physical destruction of the ghetto at the end, and, and this is a real thing. This is how we know that the story takes place in 1892 or 1893, and the idea here was to tear down the district and then to rebuild it with broader streets and a modern infrastructure, like sewers and electricity and so on. Something similar to this had already been done in Paris in the 1850s and 1860s, and, and this was the model for what the, the powers that be in Prague wanted to do. The other thing, and, and this is what I really want to talk about here, the other thing that suffuses Myrink's Prague in this book is ethnic identities. And I want to start by taking a step back and talking about the Habsburg Empire, of which Prague was a part. Habsburg refers to the dynastic family that ruled this empire and that traces its lineage back to the 10th century. Uh, If people know of the Habsburgs, it's usually in an early modern context, uh, I mean, in the the 15th and 16th centuries, when the Habsburgs ruled really the whole lot of the world, including Mexico and the Philippines, as well as Spain and Italy and most of Central Europe. This nearly global rule rested in two separate, two distinct branches of the family, the Spanish branch and the Austrian branch. The Spanish branch died out in the 17th century, but then the Austrian branch stayed in power until they were defeated in the First World War. And it's the Austrian branch that we really want to focus on here. And look, the names here, they can be really confusing. Uh, I do tend to just call this the Habsburg Empire my, myself. That's what I call it when I'm teaching as well. Uh, I, I, I guess I just prefer to call the polity by the name of the ruling dynasty. But there are other scholars who will call it the Austrian Empire or the Austro-Hungarian Empire or sometimes even the dual monarchy, though that's, you know, that's a bit fancy. But it is all referring to the same thing. And that thing is an empire ruled from Vienna that included Austria, northeast in Italy, Hungary, Bohemia, or Czechia, if you prefer, uh, Slovakia, Croatia, uh, parts of what today are Romania, Poland, Germany, and uh, also a few other places in Central Europe. That is not an exhaustive list by any means. And this was a hereditary monarchy, but the constitution that brought all of these diverse places together under one rule was complicated. But what it amounts to is that this is a medieval state that survived into the 20th century, and its constitution was largely medieval in nature, Uh, though of course it did change over time. But the reason that one person ruled these places is that he was the hereditary ruler, not of all of them, but that he was the hereditary ruler of each of them. He was the king of Austria, but he was also the king of Hungary. And these are actually separate jobs. He just happens to have both of them. Hypothetically, those jobs could get split up again in the future, such that two different people would have them. He's also Duke of this place and that place, Count of over there, King of Bohemia, and and, and so on, right? You, you get the picture. And throughout the Middle Ages, these weren't always passed on to the same son or nephew. They often were, in fact, divided up. Uh, The eldest son might get Austria and Italy, but then two other sons would get Bohemia and Hungary. 
And then like the youngest son would just get like one city to rule over or something like that. Uh, but as we get into modernity, this practice, uh, which is called partible inheritance, by the way, uh, this practice ceased. They stopped doing this. Uh, this is a trend all over Europe, right? The Middle Ages are full of partible inheritance. And then, hey, modernity is not. That's how we get nation states. Uh, this is a trend all over Europe then, right? And it is how we get the big centralized states that we have now. As we get into the 19th and 20th centuries, the Habsburg Empire is a really big state with only a moderate amount of centralization, as I might say, low amount of centralization. The emperor, who rules from Vienna, is sovereign, and he controls the army and is able to issue edicts on uh, matters in a handful of spheres, and, and he does collect taxes everywhere. But most actual government is carried out at the local and regional level by local and regional people. It's really a type of federated system. But because these places were all part of a single state for centuries, there was a lot of movement of peoples and a lot of transmission of culture. So individuals living here might identify themselves as linguistically Hungarian or Czech, but still identify politically as Austrian and, and patriotically as Austrian as well. Speaking German was not required for that identity. You could feel patriotic camaraderie for people with different linguistic and cultural identities and practices than you have. Right? You were all proud members of the same state, or at least you could be. But then comes nationalism. Uh, this is something we've talked about a lot on this podcast before, so I won't rehash that here. Probably this was episodes on Guy Gabriel Kay's A Song for Our Bone and The City and the City by China Mieville, I'm pretty sure, uh, if you want to go back to those. Uh, also, definitely, this I am sure of, The Repairer of Reputations by Robert W. Chambers, which we did on Elder Sign a few years ago. But all right, nationalism. This is the idea that your language and culture, which is to say your ethnicity, should be the most important identity that you have, and also that each ethnicity should have its own sovereign state. Now, this idea is totally incompatible with the idea of empire or, or the idea of confederation that was fundamental to the Habsburg state in Central Europe. And so there was some conflict as people converted to and adopted the belief in nationalism, it's a belief that almost all of us have today, but it's, it's new and it's a belief that people had to convert to. And here's where I want to return to Prague, and we will get back to the golem eventually, too. I did say that I was likely to wander around a bit here. But Prague was a really, really cosmopolitan city. It was one of the chief cities of the empire. It is a Czech city, but before the middle of the 20th century, it was also a German city. German speakers comprised at least a third of the city population, and, and really probably more than that. And the Habsburgs did conduct decadal censuses, by the way, and so we have records of this sort of thing, uh, though all of that is really, really complicated. I won't get into the particulars of how we know what we know and, and what we can't tell from these censuses and so on, though it is actually very cool. But in any case, Prague around 1900 also had a very large Jewish population that had a special relationship with the emperor. The emperor was their special patron, their, their special protector. Uh, the what that meant, of course, could vary by individual personality. And, and this is a relationship, a historical relationship, that grew out of the wars of religion of the Protestant Reformation. But by 1600, Prague had the second largest Jewish population in Europe, uh, the first being in Constantinople, which, uh, of course, at this point is also the, the capital of the Ottoman Empire. Now, this Jewish population was required by law to live in its own district, a district that was walled. It's called a ghetto. 
this is a word that has a very different connotation in America, but it does derive from a specific place name in Venice. It, it derives from the Jewish district in Venice, and then it came to be used to refer to the Jewish districts in really in, in, in any European city. Now, right, for most of us today, the idea that you would have to live in one neighborhood and that that neighborhood has walls is something we would see as an oppression, right, as a, as a type of tyranny. But in the Middle Ages and, and also in early modernity, this was considered to be protective, right? It was regarded as a good thing, actually. The walls were there so that Jewish people could protect themselves from pogroms, which in the 19th century and around 1900 seemed to be a thing of the past, uh, of course, was not. And so the ability to have the walls was actually a privilege that Jews were given, right? This was something they thought of as a boon, not as a, a type of, of punishment. And moreover, within the walls, the Jewish community lived largely by its own rules and customs. It could have its own judges uh, and also other instruments of, of government, right? So the walls provided both protection and autonomy. And in Prague, this ceased to be true really around 1850, when the emperor allowed Jews to leave the ghetto, to go live wherever they, they wanted. And so in the Golem, in Prague around 1900, the ghetto is also no longer exclusively the Jewish district. In fact, at this time, only about half the people living there are Jews. And that is certainly what we see in the book. In this story, the ghetto has ceased to be the autonomous Jewish district and is now actually just a neighborhood of mostly poor people. This is what we see in the novel. Okay, so I totally lost my thread there. I was really trying to get to something about nationalism. I'm going to bring us back to that now. So uh, Prague was about one-third German, two-thirds Czech. Uh, Jews here, in this case, would have been included in the German category because the census really asked what your quote-unquote conversational language was. Uh, but it also was not a fill-in-the-blank question. It was a multiple-choice question. And hey, guess what? Yiddish and Hebrew, not on the list. Uh, though also simply because in Prague, much of the Jewish population did speak German as their conversational language. Uh, and that is definitely what we see in the, the Golem, where there is writing in Hebrew, but people are only speaking German or Czech to each other. Okay, so this question on the census was asking people to make decisions about their identity because you could only give one answer, right? Even if you used multiple languages, you could only tick one box. And so you had to choose which one of the like three or four you might tick. You had to choose which one you were going to choose. And that was a self-conscious act of choosing an identity, an ethnic identity here. And in 1700 and in 1800 as well, most people everywhere in the empire would have used at least two languages, and sometimes as many as a dozen languages, depending on the context, right? You'd have one language for one thing, another language for another. And we see this linguistic plurality in a, a variety of ways, but one that I really love, this is something I use in class sometimes, uh, one that I really love is a soldier's diary from around the year 1900. Now, this dude's native language was Slovenian, and so when he wrote about home, uh, and especially when he wrote about his girlfriend at home, he did that in Slovenian. But whenever he's recording stories about his day doing soldier stuff, it's always in German, because German is the language of the army. But this dude also liked to write poetry, and he did that in Serbian for some reason. And uh, he did also, as you know, soldiers tend to, he did also have an active sexual imagination, right? He is stationed far from his girlfriend. Uh, and this is something that he writes about exclusively in Hungarian. 
But on the census, right, on the census, he could have only chosen one of those languages. And of course, we don't actually have this guy's census form, which is a shame because it would be interesting to see which of these languages he picked. And I think we today would say, well, of course, he's going to have picked Slovenian because that's where his home is. I suspect he would have picked German because that's the language he did use conversationally with his comrades in the army, right? And so in that way, although he was born a Slovenian, at least the way we would think of it, he would have chosen to become German, perhaps unwittingly, but he would have chosen German as his principal identity at this point. And this idea that we're looking at here, this idea that you can only have one ethnic identity, this grows out of nationalism. And the census that I've been talking about is a tool that the Habsburg government is using to support the idea of nationalism, also to enforce the idea of nationalism. So what I'm really getting at here, right, is that this census was used to create national identities that people didn't really have before the 19th century. And it's doing that by telling people that if they speak Czech to their kids, then Czech is their identity or German or Slovenian or, you know, whatever it might be. And now this idea is the idea that we all really live with in the world today, but it took hold less strongly and also later in some places than in others. But Prague is one of the places where nationalism took hold very strongly and very early. And so by the time of the Golem, Prague has become a city divided. It's become one city with two populations becoming more and more distinct from each other every year. And I want to share two interesting ways that we can see this in action. Uh, Then we'll turn to where we see this in the Golem. We'll get back to the book, I promise. So in the Prague of 1900, the city's university, Charles University, had two distinct programs, one in German and one in Czech, Uh, though they continued to share the library, also the botanical garden and a few other resources. They were completely distinct otherwise. At the same time, the bureaucracy of Bohemia, uh, that's one of the things you might call Czechia before the 20th century, the bureaucracy of Bohemia was split along these ethnic lines. And, and I say split, but what I really mean is doubled. Every position had to be occupied by both a Czech speaker and a German speaker. So you wound up with twice as many bureaucrats as you actually needed, which I guess made that a pretty nice job, right? Half the work, all the pay, that does sound pretty nice. And what that amounted to is that by the time of the Golem, there were more bureaucrats living in Prague than living in London, even though London was five times as large and also was the skeet of a global empire. Now, the Golem is not a book about nationalism, but we do see it in the background of my rank's story. There's a particular incident where Pernath speaks with a Czech construction worker, and this guy claims he doesn't speak German, but in fact he does. He just wants to broadcast his Czech identity. Uh, there is also some class stuff going on here as well, though I'm not going to allow myself to get distracted by that. Uh, there is, too, also a, a lot going on in this story about Jewishness as an identity. The son of Aaron Wassertrum, who becomes a doctor outside of the ghetto, changes his name to sound German. Uh, Really, he changes his name so that he can become German. He wants to assimilate into the German culture of Prague. On the other hand, right at the same time, our narrator is a German-speaking Christian aristocrat who moves to the ghetto and studies Jewish mysticism and maybe even marries a Jewish woman at the end. 
And I'll say one more thing about this before getting back to the actual text, and and that is that the the scholarship on the Prague Golem story generally agrees that it is a phenomenon of the early 19th century, and it's one that comes out of nationalism, right? That the Golem story is about claiming Jewishness as an ethnic identity akin to the German and Czech identities in the city, right? That it is a nationalizing story growing out of the same impulse as the Brothers Grimm collection of German folk stories. Because part of being an ethnicity, part of being a nationality, is not just having a distinct language, also distinct food and and clothing and, you know, I don't know, weird mustaches or whatever. It is having your own stories. And these stories have to have a long history to them. And, well, if you don't have those, you make them up. And this is something we see all over the, the world. This is a huge part of what's going on, especially in Europe, especially in Central and Eastern Europe. But it's happening all over as people adopt adopt the idea of nationalism as people convert to this idea. And in fact, this is how we get the Lord of the Rings, right? This is what Tolkien is doing specifically, is trying to invent a mythology for England, which does have all the other hallmarkers of being a nationality, but doesn't have this ancient mythology. But all right, let's let's get back to the text. I feel like I should go back to the top of the show and record a little bumper that says, uh, you can probably make a drinking game out of how many times I'm going to get distracted in this episode. But at any rate, I started this long digression by saying that my rink made Prague come alive to me. And let me show some of the ways that he does that by sharing one of my favorite passages. Here's what he writes. I must have taken a wrong turning. It could only be the old castle steps that ran across the slope of the Furstenberg Gardens. Long stretches of clay soil, then a paved path. A bulky shadow towered up above me, the top ending in a stiff black pointed hat. The Dalibor Tower, the dungeons where many subjects had died of hunger whilst their kings hunted game in the stag moat below. And this passage goes on for a while. It, it, it goes on for quite a while, in fact, and it takes us on a tour of the castle complex in Prague, and it, it really is just great. It's an awesome passage. And the book is full of passages like this. And I think this now is maybe a great place for me to stop rambling about nationalism and, and move into our strengths and weaknesses segment. For me, the greatest strength of the book is the way that Myrink makes Prague come alive. The way that he makes me feel as if I have been living there Well, really, I've only been reading this book at bedtime for a few days. The ghetto is this really vibrant slum. It's close and narrow, and the buildings defy Euclidean geometry. I mean, they really do. They're full of secret passages that shouldn't be there. The city as a whole is gloomy and gothic. It's even menacing. Uh, We see the people as well, and these are a cast of lively characters, right? Fallen aristocrats, junk shop millionaires, prostitutes and soldiers and students— And then there's this fantastic prison sequence. And Myrink does all of this while also exploring Jewish mysticism. And he writes the whole thing in a dreamlike prose that itself feels mystical. And this book is just going to live in my imagination for a long time. I actually finished reading the book like two weeks ago, and I still can't let go of it. It's kind of the place I go to if I'm not actively doing something else with my brain. I'm actually in some ways having the same types of experiences that Pernath has. Uh, and Actually, maybe that's the whole point. Maybe the book itself is actually kind of supernatural. It's like, uh, it's like the king in yellow or something like that. Now, I do not have any weaknesses to list here, but I will say that my initial experience of starting to read this book was not great, and yours might not be either. I I, I did actually have a difficult time getting into it. Of course, that's always subjective. It maybe had more to do with my stress levels than anything else, but I will say that once I started over and gave myself to this book, 
I fell into it completely. And, and now I just, I can't imagine reading another book. But of course, read another book. I must for the show must go on. So that's just to say that if you haven't read the book before, but now you think you might be patient with those first two or three chapters. Okay, that is going to bring my review to a close. I do, of course, as always, I hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com or our subreddit and talk with me about the themes and motifs and the, the strengths and weaknesses that I've focused on, but especially on what I left out. And I did leave out quite a bit. There's a really unresolved element in this novel, a real mystery. And I would love to know what you think is going on. In fact, it's actually two mysteries, or at least it's it's two ideas, maybe I should say. I have two ideas that I want to submit for your consideration, as uh, Rod Serling would say. And the question is really whether anything supernatural is going on here. Is the golem real? Is the astral projection and the weird mystical dummy telephone stuff from the prison, is that real? Or is all of this just in Pernath's head? And I have two readings, uh, both of which certainly cannot be true at the same time, and neither of them, of course, may be the right answer, or at least your answer. The first is that, yeah, it is real. And what's going on with the frame narrative, the idea that someone else is mystically dreaming Pernath's experiences of 30-some years ago, the idea here is that the golem is the dreamer, right? The golem is the person who is dreaming Pernath's experiences. It's been 33 years, and we're told early on that the golem appears every 33 years. As this person wanders around what used to be the ghetto, people keep telling him that he looks like a younger Pernath. And the very end of the book is Pernath refusing to meet this person who has just returned his hat. And the butler explains that it's not personal, it's an old rule of the house, right? And this, to me, feels like Pernath has been expecting the golem to come here, and he wants to avoid it. So that's one idea, that's one reading about what's going on here. But the other is that this is all just very much in Pernath's head. And not just the mystical stuff, but also the crazy melodramatic murder plots, which do seem too melodramatic to actually be real. Of course, that's kind of what stories are, right? But the evidence for this is largely just that Pernath doesn't seem well to us. But also, at the very end, when we are in the frame narrative again, the, the person who has been dreaming Pernath's life meets someone who says that Pernath used to claim to be other people. And these other people are some of the colorful characters we have met in this story. And so there are some definite Fight Club vibes here in that moment. And so I would love to know what you think about these readings. I'd also love to know if you have your own. You probably do. I'm sure that neither of mine are actually all that good. But in any case, come talk with me and come talk with each other about this really awesome book. So, all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at claytemplemedia. So, as I said, the show must go on. We will be doing another book next. Uh, and next time, that book is going to be Nine Princes in Amber by Roger Zelazny. I'm really, really excited to do this. I've been looking forward to revisiting this book for a very long time. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.